Hello, Wanderers. Your wicked hostess Jacqueline here. I just wanted to let you know, instead of releasing my episodes on Fridays, I will be releasing them on Monday. This gives you the entire week to plan your next adventure. Warning, wicked wanderers may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, Wanderers, and welcome to Wicked Wanderers Podcast. I'm your Wicked hostess, Jacqueline. Each week, we will travel to a different destination. I will discuss a haunted place, some dark tourism, as well as some fun and unique things to do while we are there. So pack your bags. We're going to South Carolina. Welcome to the Palmetto State, located in the coastal southeastern region of the United States, bordered by North Carolina and Georgia, named after King Charles I and one of the original 13 colonies, filled with beautiful historic houses and low country culture. Don't forget the amazing food. There are beautiful beaches, mountain ranges, and so much more. But before we get to our first destination, here are some fun facts and crazy laws in South Carolina. Tattoos are offensive. Well, I guess I'm screwed. I have over 15. If you have a horse, it cannot be kept in a bathtub. The real question is, who has a bathtub big enough to keep a horse? And what kind of horse are we talking about here? A mini horse? A regular horse? Who knows? Railroad companies better not scare any horses. They may be liable if they do. You must have a permit to fire a missile. Is anyone out there in South Carolina that has missiles? You can sell anything on Sundays except light bulbs. That is so random. Do you love pinball? Well, you got to be 18 or older to play. If you are at the park and you need to pee, Don't do it in the water. It's illegal. The fire department may blow your house up. Well, that's great. If you're in Lancaster, South Carolina, don't dance in public. It's illegal. Trust me, you don't want to go to Lancaster, South Carolina. Unless you're getting food at Japan Restaurant, definitely don't go to Walmart. South Carolina is the leading producer of peaches east of the Mississippi River. It's not Georgia, guys. The loggerhead turtle is South Carolina's state reptile. It can grow up to 400 pounds and live around 50 years old. Don't leave trash in your car in Hilton Head. It's illegal. Furman University in Greenville, the legal drinking age is 60. That sucks for anybody going to college there. No one may sleep on the beach at night at Myrtle Beach. Myrtle Beach is garbage. Don't even go there. 
Fortune tellers are required to obtain a special permit from the state. I mean, I feel like that's valid. This isn't a fun fact or a weird law, but when someone tells you that it's just a palmetto bug, oh no, they're lying to you. That is a big-ass flying cockroach, and those fuckers get huge. And now on to our first destination. We're going to one of the most haunted places in South Carolina, called Hell's Gate. Hell's Gate Cemetery, also known as Oakwood Cemetery, is in Spartanburg, South Carolina. The address is 182 Oakwood Ave. If the name isn't scary enough, this is Spartanburg's oldest graveyard, dating back to the 1800s, and it is nestled on 20 acres. The cemetery is filled with beautiful statues, and it would look like a place you would want to bury your loved one, at least at first glance. But that's not where we're going. We will travel to the back of the cemetery. While heading to the back, you may realize why they call this cemetery Hell's Gate. Hell's Gate is the older portion of the cemetery, and it was a potter's field. A potter's field is a common burial ground for the unknown, the unclaimed, prisoners, wards of the state, or people who are just too poor and couldn't afford a proper burial. Why do funerals cost so much anyways? Did you know the average funeral is between $7,000 and $12,000? That doesn't include a headstone, monument, or even flowers. Not trying to be morbid over here, but you're pretty much putting your loved one in an overpriced box so they can rot. Just putting it into perspective. But let's get back to Hell's Gate. Hell's Gate is behind the tree line in the back of the cemetery. As I stated, there's a potter's field that is filled with unmarked graves of orphaned children, prisoners, and the poor from the 19th and 20th centuries. And it is extremely creepy. There are some homemade markers made of wood, and a lot of the graves aren't even marked. In 1914, the city dug up over a hundred graves and move them so they could develop the area. So now we have orphans, prisoners, the poor, and bodies that were moved from their purchased final resting places all mashed together. Now let's sprinkle on some satanic rituals. It is said that satanic rituals would take place at night at the cemetery for decades, maybe even centuries. In 2012, while a caretaker was making his rounds, he found a disturbed grave. Upon further inspection, he noticed that the coffin was pried open and the head of the deceased was removed and gone. If something like that doesn't cause hauntings, I don't know what would. 
I mean, who knows what things were done to that head and what happened to it. So let's get to the paranormal phenomenons that happen at the cemetery. There are strange noises, children laughing, and I don't know what it is about children laughing, but that is so freaking creepy. Sudden screams, bright orbs, and apparitions are seen especially at night. The most common thing that happens when you're at Hell's Gate is the erratic cell phone behavior. Batteries are drained even if you have a fully charged battery going in. Phones that are off will ring, people's calls will drop, or they can't even make any phone calls when in the area of Hell's Gate. Blast of cold air, an unexplainable mist, not to mention a lady in white has been seen. People will suddenly feel ill when they are in Hell's Gate. A woman and two mediums went to Hell's Gate and they saw a lady in white. It is said that her son died in the cemetery and they could feel the mother's pain. There have been numerous investigations that you can find on YouTube. Let me read to you some of the comments from OnlyInYourState.com about Hell's Gate. Fallback said, I have gone there to investigate with friends at night. It is by far the most haunted place I have ever been. Full-bodied apparitions and orbs are caught on camera. People in period clothing are seen, and you can see them very clearly. This place is insane. Jim Williamson visited a few nights ago with friends and noted the following incidents. Gold orb caught on camera. Shadow man caught on camera. Unusually cold in the area. Caught on the thermal camera. Floating apparitions of a young girl that was witnessed by two friends not caught on camera. Sudden appearance, then disappearance of a odor of decaying flesh. Later was detected by another person. Seemed odd since we were in an area where the dead had been buried decades ago. And the last review from Angela Buck. I went a long time ago on Christmas night with my cousin. Twice we saw a full body. Twice it told us to get out and that we don't belong. We got chased by a ghost. It's crazy. So if you're brave enough to visit Hell's Gate, come on, let's go. It will be fun. Hell's Gate isn't the only fun thing to do in Spartanburg. As I mentioned in the beginning, I'm going to tell you about some fun and unique things to do. And I always support local businesses. Do you love art? Well, for me, it depends on it. But I really do enjoy West Main Artist Co-op, located at 578 West Main Street. This place used to be a 20,000 square foot Baptist church. Oh my God. In the South, there are so many damn churches. It is ridiculous. They're like Dunkin' Donuts up North. There's one on every fucking corner. You go down the road, church. 
Over here, church. Across the street, church. There's a church next to a church. It's fucking ridiculous. But anyways, let's get back to the co-op. It's now home to 36 studios with local artists. They have rotating exhibits, so there will always be something new for you to see. I am a huge outdoors person, so of course I'm going to recommend going to the Croft State Park. The address is 450 Croft State Park Road. Hours are 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. It's $3 for adults and $1 for children. It's roughly 7,000 acres of rugged, wooded terrain, easily accessible, and it's right near downtown. There are 20 miles of trails for both hiking and biking. There are two lakes that can be used for fishing and boating, or simply a nice stroll around the sparkling waters. Picnic tables are nearby. It is also famous for its equestrian facilities, making it a magical place to go horseback riding. If you're looking to connect with nature, this is the park to go to. There are 50 campground sites on the park as well if you want to stay longer. Another fun thing to do while in Spartanburg is the Holly Wild Animal Park. Mission to the park is $9 for adults and $7 for children. The address is 2325 Hampton Road. It is a nonprofit animal sanctuary with over 500 animals. I love this. Which have appeared in movies and television shows. The zoo provides natural habitats. It features an outback safari section where animals such as bison, watsu cattle, and several species of deer and donkeys roam free. You can even hand feed some of the animals in the safari section. When you're in Spartanburg, you're going to get hungry, so stop by Burgers and Bakery, located at 8881 Warren H. Abernathy Highway. You know I love bakeries, but this is so much more. Burgers and Bakeries is set in a 1931 Prohibition era in an Art Deco cottage hidden on a hill in the tree. One of the best parts, they're dog friendly. If it's wintertime, they have fire burning in the fireplace. Everything is locally sourced and made from scratch. Burgers, hot dogs, tacos, subs, and so much more. American, European, and Central Asian desserts with 8 to 12 desserts that rotate daily. And they're so good. They are award-winning Best of Spartanburg in 2021 and 2022. And now I'm officially hungry. Our next destination is about two hours away, so I'm going to give you some places to stop by while we take our road trip. Stop by Enore River Winery, located at 1650 
Dusty Road, Newberry, South Carolina. Try some amazing local wine. And who doesn't love some wine tasting? You can wander around the eight acres of this beautiful vineyard or hang out on the wraparound porch. Don't forget to try a wine slushy. They're delicious. Now we're going to the River Banks Zoo, located at 500 Wildlife Parkway in Columbia, South Carolina. This is one of my favorite zoos. I've been there eight to 10 times. Some areas you can do hands-on things with the animals. I fed the lorikeets. I probably had about 10 of them on me. You can also feed the giraffes. So many beautiful animals, koalas, white rhinos, lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my. There is a botanical garden as well with more than 5,700 species of native and exotic plants. They do brews at the zoo and booze at the zoo. This is a place you must go to. You can spend hours there. Their food's actually not bad at all, too. Our final stop before we get to our final destination is Sumpner, South Carolina. Stop by Sumpner and go to a festival. They almost have a festival for every month of the year. And who doesn't love a festival? They're one of my favorite things to do. I try to go to any local festivals around. I love all the unique things there. The food, seeing new people. It's just really a good time. There's the festival on Ave, typically the second week of April. Oktoberfest on Maine. Porches of Sumner and Fantasy of Lights, just to name a few of the festivals that happen there. And now for our final destination. Let's get wicked. Our final destination is in Pinewood, South Carolina. We are going to 10075 Calvary Church Road in Pinewood, South Carolina. We will be visiting the gravestone of George Steiny. Jr. You don't know who George Steiny Jr. is? Well, you should. This young boy didn't have justice, and he is a symbol of the racism that took over the South. He was born on October 21st, 1929, in Alkaloo, South Carolina. George was an African-American boy who grew up in the era of the Jim Crow laws. The Jim Crow laws were state and local laws enforcing racial segregation in the South. This disgusting law was effective in some areas until 1968. This law intentionally denied African-Americans the right to vote hold jobs, get an education, or other opportunities. The Jim Crow law also had the Black Code, 
which was a legal way to put black citizens into indentured servitude, control where they lived, how they traveled, and allowed seizing of children for labor purposes. George Steiny Jr. lived with his father, George Sr., and his mother named Aim. He had two brothers, John, age 17, and Charles, age 12, as well as two sisters, Catherine, age 10, and Aim, age 7. George's father worked at the town sawmill, and the family lived in company housing. With the Jim Crow laws in full effect, the town was separated by the railroad, whites on one side and African Americans on the other. Two white girls named June Binnaker, age 11, and Mary Emma Thames, age 8, were riding their bikes down the railroad tracks. They went past the lumber mill, where just about everybody in town worked, including both of their fathers. It was at this time they spotted George and his sister, Aim, who were taking their family cow to graze. The two girls stopped and asked George if he knew where they could find some Mary Pops. George said he didn't know, and a lumberjack truck rode by. The girls continued down the road. George and Aim continued their chores and watched their cow. Little did anyone know this was the last time the two girls would ever be seen again alive. The girls didn't return that night in a search party of about 100 to 200 men began. The men fanned out searching for the girls. The Steinies were at a neighborhood party when they found out about this. George Jr. and his father went searching for the girl. But George did not tell his parents that him and Amy had seen the girls earlier that day. Unfortunately, Time was against them, it would soon become dark, and there was no sign of the girls at all. The next morning, George Burke Sr., one of the big bosses at the lumber mill, led a search party. They would find the girls in a ditch on property that Burke owned. That's suspicious. But this was on the black side of the tracks. The girls had been met with an extremely violent death. They suffered severe blunt force trauma to the head. Thames would have a hole in her forehead that went straight through her skull. Binnaker seemed to suffer the worst. She was struck at least seven times to the back of her head. The back of her head was beaten so badly there was nothing left but a mass of crushed bones. The medical examiner stated that the blunt force injuries were done by something with a round head 
about the size of a hammer. There was no evidence of sexual assault, though there was bruising, but both girls' hymens were intact. Like in any small town, rumors spread, and it was said that the girls stopped by a prominent white family's house on the day they were murdered. Officers would never investigate a white person for this crime. Put a pin in that, because I'll be coming back to this later. George was home, and his sister, Aim, and brother, Johnny. His parents weren't there. His brother, Charles, and Catherine were at the beauty parlor. Aim was out in the yard playing with two Rhode Island Reds. Sorry, guys. Every single time I hear Rhode Island Reds, I think about the Devil's Rejects when they're going to get you. But anyways, she was playing with her Rhode Island Reds and two black cars pulled up to their house. Two white men in suits got out, walked straight through the back door of their home. Aim, who was absolutely terrified, hid. And she watched as they took George and her brother Johnny out in handcuffs. George yelled to his sister to get Charlie, Cat, and Ma. Later that day, after this happened, George's father was fired from his job at the mill and they were kicked out of their home. The family literally had to flee because there was rumors of a lynch mob. So they fled to their grandmother's house. Johnny was released, but George was not. I can't imagine how scary this must have been for poor George. It being 1944, there were no Miranda rights. That didn't even happen until 1966. Though I don't think this would help anyways. He was interrogated, and 40 minutes after being arrested, Deputy Sheriff H.S. Newman told the papers that they had a full confession from George. What horrible things did that sheriff do to George to make him get a confession? The sheriff said that George killed the girls after they refused his sexual advances. That he used an eight-foot-long railroad spike and that he showed them where the weapon was in the woods. News of this caused an uproar. George was moved due to the threat of lynching. No one knew where he was taken to, including his own family. And George would be alone for the next 81 days until his trial. Do you remember Burke, the man I mentioned earlier that had found the girls? Well, he served on the coroner's inquest. This shouldn't have even been allowed. This group, which included Burke, told the prosecutor that there should be a grand jury 
for this trial. And guess who was on that grand jury? Burke, the sketchy guy who found the dead girls on his property. I really dislike Burke. He's a fucking piece of shit. 31 days. Yes, I repeat. 31 days after being arrested, George stood in the courthouse in Clarendon County. The place was packed with over a thousand white people. Not one African American showed up, and they weren't even allowed. George's family wasn't even there because they were so terrified to go and afraid of being lynched. George had counsel, Charles Plowden, who didn't do a damn thing for George, and he also had an all-white jury. This all-white jury found George guilty, and Judge P.H. Stoll sentenced him to death by electrocution. No transcript of the trial, no appeal was ever filed. There wasn't even evidence of his confession. Just what Sheriff Newman said. That's some fucking bullshit. George's family, the church, and the NAACP tried to appeal to Governor Olin D. Johnston for clemency, and there were protests, and the governor received hundreds of letters begging for mercy. But Governor Johnson was also a piece of shit and a sorry excuse of a human being, and he didn't budge. He even went on to say that he went to visit George at the death house. A quote from the post-courier from Johnson said the following, I have just talked with the officer who made the arrest in this case. It may be interesting for you to know that Steiny killed the smaller girl to rape the larger one. Then he killed the larger girl and raped her dead body. Twenty minutes later, he returned and attempted to rape her again. But her body was too cold. All of this he admitted himself. So his execution would move forward. 17-year-old Wilfer Hunter was in jail with George. He would become George's only friend. He would confide in Johnny and ask him why they wanted to kill me for something I didn't do. After 81 days, George's mother and father finally got to see him at the Columbia Penitentiary. They were never allowed to see him again. This breaks my fucking heart. They only got to see their son once before he was killed? I mean, 
don't understand how people are so fucking evil. On George's last day, as the guards came to get him, George grabbed Hunter, and Hunter hugged George. That was his only friend there. George whispered goodbye in Hunter's ears. George then whispered goodbye in Hunter's ear. I just can't believe this would happen. And I wish I was there to stop it. June 16, 1944, at 7.30 in the morning, 95-pound George Steiny Jr. walked into the execution chamber at the South Carolina State Penitentiary in Columbia. He was carrying a Bible. He was too small for the adult-sized electric chair. George had to sit on the Bible to fit. The guards had difficulty strapping George in, and the mask placed on his head was too big. When the switch was flipped, 2,400 volts surged through his tiny death mask, slipped from his face, revealing the tears falling and his open, terrified eyes. A second and third charge followed after eight minutes. George was finally pronounced dead. George's siblings, three who are still alive, believe that George's confession was coerced. Of course it was. They believe he was a scapegoat for the white community that wanted vengeance. The last time George's sister saw him, she said he was burned. 72 years later, on the 16th of December in 2014, Judge Carmen Mullen overturned George's conviction. George's siblings, the few that were still alive, finally got to see justice. So who actually did this? Sonia Williamson, who was related to the whites that had power in that town in 1944, was determined to find justice and the truth. Her grandmother went to school with the girls and her grandfather was at George's trial. Her grandmother told her that her grandfather always said that George didn't do it. Sonia continued to press her grandmother for more details that, but had no luck. She continued to dig, and when she did, she found out some things she didn't want to know. Her ancestors were in the KKK, including her own grandfather, the one who was at the courthouse that day. Some of the authorities in Clarendon County were also in the KKK. I'm not surprised about this at all. Sonia finally hit the jackpot 
in the archives in Columbia, South Carolina. A quote from the Post Courier states, death records. There were pictures of George, his execution, witness list, the coroner's inquest, and jury papers. The grand jury record. Yet a new horror replaced her thrill at finding them. The names she saw on that paper were familiar. One of her own family members served on the coroner's inquest jury. So had George Burke Sr., who had been the jury's foreman. In fact, Burke served in several roles leading to George's death and conviction. Now, you remember when I said, let's put a pin in this? Well, let's pull that pin out. Burke kept coming up over and over. Well, he also had a son, Burke Jr. Remember when I mentioned a lumber truck driving by that day? When the girls asked George about the Mary Pops? Well, that was Burke Jr. Burke Jr. died three years after the girl's murder at the age of 29, but he had a son named Wayne before he died. Now, I'm going to read you another quote from the Courier from Wayne, which states the following. Wayne explained that he only knew what his grandmother had told him. One, on the day the girls went missing, they had stopped by his grandparents' home, across from Betty June's house and a few doors down from Mary Emma's. They wanted to invite her on their Mary Pop expedition. But Wayne was napping at the time and she couldn't leave him unattended. Just then, his father had driven up in a logging truck. George Burke Jr. was on his way to the mill's log pond, which sat across the street from the Green Hill Baptist Church to unload some lumber. George Burke Jr., offered the girls a ride, and they threw their bikes in the back and hopped in. Neither girl was seen alive after that. So, George Sr., who found the dead girls on his property's son, Burke Jr., is actually the last person who saw the girls, and most likely is the person who murdered those girls, not George. Burke Jr. said he dropped them off to pick flowers. But there's nothing and no one to prove this. Mic drop right there. I mean, to me, it's pretty plain to see who actually did this. Allegedly. 
that poor young innocent boy was executed for something he didn't do. And this isn't the first time, and I'm sure it won't be the last, where somebody's wrongfully convicted why the actual murderer is walking free. George's headstone states the following. Wrongfully convicted, illegally executed by South Carolina, conviction vacated by court order, date December 16th, 2014. While we are at the cemetery, let's pay some respect to George and leave him some flowers, a letter, or just let him know that we're sorry for what happened to him. So what do you guys think? Do you really believe George did this? I believe it was a cover-up. False confessions happen to this day. And that's not even adding the deep-seated racism George faced. I would love to hear your thoughts about this. I wanted to end this episode on this note. Racism hasn't left. And we, as people, need to stand up and fight for what's right. There's no black, white yellow, tan, any of that. We are from this earth. No one is better than anyone else. And until the world opens its eyes, it will never change. If you see something, say something. Do something about it. Teach the world to love and not hate. And this concludes my episode of Wicked Wanderers. Please rate and review, especially on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I would love to hear what you think about this episode or if you have any experiences, any suggestions on places to travel to. I'd love to hear them. And you can email me at wickedwandererspodcast at gmail. Pics of all the places mentioned will be posted on my Instagram at wicked underscore wandererspodcast. I do write, edit, and produce this podcast all by myself. If you wish to donate to the cause, you can do so at patreon.com slash wickedwanderers. You can do a general donation or you can join monthly. I have released a bonus episode so far. Links to where I found my information are in the show notes. And everybody... Why don't we just try to do something nice for somebody else today? Just a small act of kindness. It doesn't have to be anything big. And as always, wander more and stay wicked. (laughs) 